This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the very niche and kind of geeky details of modern warfare with me, Jake Hanrahan. For this episode, we're speaking to journalist Janet Basuto. She's going to be telling us about the Zapatista movement and how their militant wing, the EZLN, are basically gearing up to potentially go back to war with the Mexican government right now. The EZLN, the Zapatistas, they're um, socialist libertarians and they control their own kind of autonomous zone in a place called Chipas. They've been doing their thing down there, but now it looks like the government want to build right through their land and they've basically said, look, we're not having it. And they're also surrounded by military bases. So things aren't looking good. If you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popular front. So first, maybe explain who the EZLN are, the Zapatistas, because, you know, obviously there's this situation with them at the minute, but a lot of people have probably never heard of them, despite them being quite a big group. Um, you know, maybe you can go into the history and, and what they're all about. Yeah, absolutely. So the EZLN is the Ejército Zapatista Liberación Nacional, which is kind of their um, paramilitary group that started in Chiapas, um, and a little bit of the background within Chiapas as well is that during this time, it's one of the southernmost states in Mexico. Um, it borders Guatemala. Um, and during this time, it's one of the poorest states. Um, half of the people didn't have running water, uh, didn't have sewage systems. 90% of the people lived in extreme poverty. I mean, the education levels were abhorrent. Um, and children died of curable diseases. So, I mean, you can feel that there is this, this marginalized community there um, way before the EZLN started. Um, another big issue was that big ranch families kind of owned the best land and privatized the land. So um, these communities were set up to have kind of ejidos, like this communal um, land where each can um, grow their own and prosper within themselves and the privatization of land started marginalizing them even further um, and then we enter into the whole NAFTA um, agreement which this is one of the big catalysts why the movement started um, raising arms and became kind of like a full-on resistance movement at this point. And what, what year was this? When did all this start? Right, this was in 94. So the, the, the kind of call to arms started in 94, but I went too ahead of myself. So um, the Zapatistas themselves actually started in 83. Um, it started uh, with uh, six... Mesti- six um, kind of founders, uh, Subcomandante Marcos was one of the founders. He was one of the three mestizos. Um, and a mestizo is kind of um, this Spanish hybrid of uh, kind of the newer Mexican um, descendants, let's say. Um, and then three indigenous. Um, and then by 86, there were 12 and... Subcomandante Marcos was the only mestizo. Um, he kind of used his platform to communicate with the wider elite Mexico and then these indigenous populations that 
most of whom didn't speak Spanish. I mean, you, they still retain very much their um, indigenous culture and language. Maybe explain a little bit about the indigenous side of this. I mean, I don't know a lot about the indigenous peoples of Mexico. Yeah, so around this southern population, we have kind of the Mayan um, descendants. Um, so within Chiapas, you have uh, over f- five indig- uh, different ethnic populations. Um, and they all kind of just collectively live together. So within all of these communities, you speak different languages. So they came together to stop what exactly? Their lands getting kind of moved in on. Yeah, and this kind of like neoliberal um, push for Mexico. I mean, when NAFTA was signed, it was promised to bring Mexico into the first world. Um, But unfortunately, what we know now is that it, it very much... Um, marginalized, already impoverished um, communities. It it brought in, flooded the market with subsidized corn um, that threatened over a million of the corn growers. Um, And then uh, what Carlos Salinas did, the president during 1991, he also revoked Article 27, which was kind of the one of the last promises that protected indigenous territory and communities. Um, And that was seen as the lifting was seen as the preemption for NAFTA. Um, What Article 27 was, was um, one of those constitutional amendments that Emiliano Zapata basically won during the Mexican Revolution. And this is where the Zapatistas take their name. Emiliano Zapata was um, a southern... um, kind of guerrilla fighter that joined forces against uh, then-President Porfirio Diaz. Um, and he basically fought for indigenous rights. I mean, the same exact thing that, is hap- that was happening to the Zapatistas then was happening to Zapata. The elites were taking all of the land. Um, they were privatizing it, making huge ranches that weren't just making use of the land. I mean, they were... It was a huge distinction between the wealthy and the poor. Um, And what Zapata did when he mobilized his campesinos, the peasants, um, he basically just started taking back the land (laughs) by force. Right. So the Zapatistas kind of came together and said, right, we've got to do the same thing. But when did the militant wing form? You know, like the EZLN, like you said, is the militant wing, essentially, of the Zapatista movement. When did they decide, right, we have to take up arms and, and let's go? Yeah, so they had been training for, since they formed, they kind of started their own um, call to, to arms. They knew that that was an eventuality of the, um, of the movement. I mean, any peaceful negotiations weren't going on. Um, the government wasn't reaching out, weren't reaching out to them at all. So the mobilization started from 83 and it culminated into uh, January 1st, uh, 1994, which was kind of the the signing of the NAFTA when NAFTA would finally come into fruition. And also it was very advantageous for them because everybody was like drunk off their minds from from New Year's. Uh, so they descended in San Cristobal de las Casas, um, kind of this middle ground or this, this um, plaza in Chiapas and took over the presidential palace um, and kind of 
made their declaration of war to the Mexican government. And they took it, they took it how? Like how many of them? There was like, what? Like quite a lot of them, right? Turned up with rifles and old guns and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't have the number per se. I mean, it, but there, there are a lot of photos. Um, it was just squads of guerrilla. They, they, some of them had AK-47s. Others had like old guns from the 1910 Mexican Revolution. Yeah, like Mausers and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and some carried sticks. And then I even saw cardboard cutouts of rifles. So, I mean, they were... <laughs> to trick people. Yeah, they were kind of winging it at this point. And a violence... Res- I mean, blood, I don't think, was, was their their goal like the the main goal was just getting the message out immediately once they made the declaration of war they kind of sent it to medias um to to main media stations within mexico city and abroad um so they really wanted to get their point across um unfortunately um violence had to kind of be the 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 solution here um, they immediately took five municipalities just because they caught the military off guard. Um, they broke into a prison and liberated 200 of the prisoners, of indigenous prisoners. Such a good idea to do it on, like, New Year's Day. You know what I mean? Like, when everyone's, like, hungover. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the actually, the funny thing is that a journalist um, that was, like, leaving a party, he was, like, still half drunk. Um, he was the one that caught them and they delivered their declaration of war to him. He's like, just pass it on to your newspaper. He's like, what the fuck is going on? <laughs> what What's going on here? Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it did turn bloody um, once the military obviously caught wing of, wind of what was going on. Um, they descended upon San Cristobal. Um, in Ocosingo, a municipality within Chiapas, that turned out to be, I think, one of the bloodiest days. Um, the military just opened fire in a marketplace, ended up killing several civilians. Um, and then the military blamed it on the Zapatistas as well. Um, they said that these people, um, they, they forced, they kind of put responsibility on them. Um, for 150 homicides. Um, and so, I mean, this is where we see kind of the the narrative as well start to cast them as... Um, terrorists, brutal, basically. Yeah, terrorists, terrorists. I mean, the president went on and said that these guys are trained by foreign par- foreign paramilitaries. They always say that, like American or Israeli or something, you know what I mean? Let's talk about what they actually believed in then, you know, what did they want? Because they had this declaration, um, but it wasn't just like, right, give us the land back. They have a specific kind of political ideology and stuff like that. You know, they're like, what, uh, like socialist libertarians, right? Like, what did they want for their areas? Right. So they wanted to be included in the national dialogue. I mean, their entire thing, um, or one of their... Um, biggest calls is for the recognition of indigenous rights and culture. I mean, throughout this time, Mexico would say, yes, we love them, we care for them, we do this. But it was kind of this facade of, you know, there are museum pieces. Um, So they wanted to be recognized down to support, aid, resources, um, be included within um, 
the political arena, a a newer political arena, because they also have voiced calls to um, um, to boycott elections because they're inherently corrupt. I mean, the, the, the platform as it's built at this moment is inherently corrupt to them. So their new call is for a new campaign and a new political movement, um, whole autonomy for, for the regions. Um, so, I mean, I don't know if that answers it correctly, but it's, it's full autonomy of their rights, but with a kind of a more integrated Mexican model. Right. And, and specifically, they, you know, they want autonomous zones and, you know, semi-leaderless kind of um, representation, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the way that their model is, is made right now, they, they, they have about 43 territories, autonomous zones um, in uh, Chiapas. So they're kind of trying to lead by example and, the, and how they're, um, how they made up their governance is basically broken up into autonomous municipalities and they elect their own governments, which in turn, they elect their own, um, uh, kind of representatives to the Caracoles, which is kind of this municipality that they've created. Um, uh, they've completely abolished any rules of, the Mexican governance. So once you enter into their ter- territory, you completely um, abide by kind of the Zapatista model and the Mexican model is kind of thrown out the window. Right, it's direct democracy. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they make an effort to to also translate um, whatever accordances or agreements they come into, they go back, they translate into five different languages. So all of the indigenous uh, or ethnic groups kind of understand what's going on. They get buy-in from the community. So unless everybody agrees to it or or supports this this new addendum or whatever it be, it be um, they, they'll continue with it or they'll go back and sit down and talk. I mean, it's an f- incredibly inclusive model. Um, they have schools, clinics. They've invested in secondhand ambulances. How, how did they get to this stage, though? Because, you know, like you said, the, the military come out, they got slaughtered, essentially. You know, they fought back, but they, from what I understand, they got pretty badly beaten. Um, how did they then suddenly end up with the space they wanted? Yeah, so I think one of the most brilliant models that Subcomandante de Marcos and I think the entire community did was that they realized that they weren't going to get anything out of peaceful negotiations or or hidden negotiations with the government. So they immediately exported their model to the media um, and to basically anybody that would listen. So right from the get-go, I mean, in the uprising in 94, they had the international media uh, shining a spotlight on them. Um, and I think that's also why the military kind of held back a little bit. I mean, they were pretty gruesome, but they still held back because they knew people were observing them. Um, and as much as the people knew about these indigenous rights, um, they, they got a fairly great amount of support from Mexico City. I mean, the moment that the military started reining in on them, they, they descended on in Mexico City in huge protests. Saying like, leave them alone sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, it was respect the rights. I mean, like, 
also there's there are a lot of indigenous people all over Mexico so there is an element of support people understand um, people are Philly I mean like my dad's side is very indigenous so there's there is a uh, kind of this appreciation and understanding for what they want and, and what they're fighting for so I mean I think that was one of the biggest things that that they were brilliant in um, and kind of helped them to to become as widely known um, as they are. Um, I mean, they entered into peaceful negotiations because the people demanded it as well. After the kind of shootings by the military, the government said to them like, right, okay, let's talk now. Yeah, I mean, kind of tongue in cheek, but yeah, let's, let's sit down and talk. Let's hear you out. I mean, from the first uh, kind of iteration of peaceful negotiations, nothing happened. Um, they sat down, the Zapatistas demanded um, kind of this, you know, collective right of, a to- of territory. They wanted autonomy. They wanted self-determination. Uh, the government at that time said, yeah, sure, let's, you know, yeah, okay. But nothing really set in stone. I mean, the talks didn't go into who owned the land, who got to control the land. So as much as they would say, sure, we love it, we agree with it. I mean, there is no declaration or no, you know, pen to paper, uh, pen to paper kind of agreement. Um, then after that, so after the first round of negotiations, um, you have this kind of interim period with the next president is going to be, is running for election. Um, Carlos Salinas during that time had nominated, let's say, Luis Ronaldo Colosio. Um, and Colosio was, a, I, I think, one of the first ones that came out as like this reformist candidate within the biggest ruling elite um, kind of governing, government party, the PRI. Um, he came out and he's like, I want to be, uh, I want to make a better Mexico. And he was the first one that openly talked about ending the dictatorship. And I think that that was a, a, a sign, at least to the Zapatistas, that, okay, maybe there is something that we can work with. Um, four months after Colosio made this speech, he was assassinated. And... To this day, I mean, if if the listeners want to read into this story, it's really interesting. To this day, there's no concrete kind of fact over who, um, let's say, coordinated the the assassination. There's a lot of skepticism that it was an inside job. Yeah, that was my immediate thought. <laughs> and I don't know anything about the situation, but, you know, generally when someone talks about ending dictatorships, it can go quite bad for them. Oh, I mean, immediately after he made that speech, heads started turning. I mean, it was, Salinas was very much um, kind of cheering him on immediately after that speech. It was like, oh shit, like, maybe, like, kind of keep it low. Don't talk about this. Um, And yeah, I mean, the investigation, 15 people that were, coordinating the investigation were also assassinated. So, I mean, oh if, we, if we want to talk about, you know, some 
some red flags here. Everything about the assassination of Colosio just just brings out red flags. Um, I mean, talking to my mom about it, she very much remembers it as kind of this was like our JFK moment. Oh, okay. Um, so it was that big. It was, yeah. I mean, it was, people were enamored with this candidate. He, he toured everywhere. He brought up huge crowds. Um, yeah. And then after this, the Zapatistas also said, you know, we're going to suspend the peace talks um, and we're back on high alert. So um, there we go back into kind of this continuation of the armed resistance. Um, Cedillo becomes president during this time. Um, and another controversial part within the Cedillo's presidency um, was that this memo from the Chase Manhattan Bank had leaked um, saying and this is quote-unquote verbatim from the memo. It says the government will need to eliminate the Zapatistas to demonstrate their effective control of the national terri- territory and of security policy. So Wow, so they weren't planning peace talks at all. They wanted to kill them. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and immediately after this, the Zapatistas wanted to consider them terrorists. Um, they concocted this story about the attorney, the attorney general said the Zapatistas have caches of explosives all across Mexico and Veracruz. Um, and they sent in the military right again. So, I mean, based on the sequence of events, you also see that there were attempts for peace talks, but those peace talks never amounted to anything. And the military would always just end up on their door on their doorstep. Um, they were patrolling uh, Chiapas and La Realidad, where the Zapatistas were um, were were in. Um, other indigenous communities that were seen as supporting them, sympathizing with them, were allied with them, were displaced, harassed, had their villages ransacked. Um, in 97, there is um, the Acteal Massacre, which was one of the other also peaceful um, indigenous communities in Chiapas, in Acteal. Um, you never really know if they were affiliated with the Zapatistas or not. They were fully pacifist community, um, but they got... The Christians. Christians, right. right. So they were praying... Um, and then this paramilitary uh, group um, just came in and massacred. And the military and the police were right outside. They were 300 meters away and nobody came to their aid for seven hours. They were being um, just horribly murdered. I mean, 45 people were uh, were killed during this time. Well, they killed pregnant women as well, right? Yeah. Um, I believe it was four pregnant women and children as well. I mean, you see images of little baby coffins. Um, so from this point, I mean, there is really no incentive for the Zapatistas to come down to the table or to sit down and to negotiate or for them to lay down their arms. I mean, sign after sign is telling them that the military is not going to support you 
or that the Mexican government's not going to support you. The military will continue harassing you and other communities around you that aren't even part of your collective. So, I mean, time after time. Um, the, um, there was this regional commander that was, that was um, kind of assigned to the, the Chiapas problem um, by Sevillo. And, and this guy was a brutal... I mean, sorry, Bruto General. I mean, he had been, um, he was like the special force expert. Um, he had a doctor in military psychology and, and right next to where the, where the Zapatistas community was, he set up this military training camp on jungle warfare. So like this broad kind of um, show of force right in front of their, their, their doorstep. They were trying to kind of, you know, prove that they were, they were going to come and they were going to come in hard. So, so how did the Zapatistas end up with their, their areas then? Because they've been living quite peacefully for a while now, right? And they're thriving down there from what I understand. You know, how did they end up being okay, essentially? Yeah, I mean... Throughout this period of their, I mean, like, the sequence and sequence of peaceful accords, they started amassing um, wide support by um, uh, Mexican elites and, and different communities. They opened up their territory to, you know, for foreigners and celebrities and people who just wanted to see. So over time, they started generating a lot of support. Um, and then they finally sat down again with Mexican Congress and they passed the Concordia Law um, and Pacification, I think it was called. Um, and that promised autonomy um, along with the San Andreas Accords that kind of just were, um, were tacitly saying, we will support your autonomy um, so I think over time, it was just way too difficult for, for the military, the government to do anything. I mean, it, it, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a, a, an endless battle, let's say. So for the moment, they've sustained their autonomy. Um, nothing really um, has been set in stone uh, to... Um, let's say to enhance it, uh, but it there there are certain mediums that have been set up to to at least tacitly protect it. And you said before the Zapatistas rose up and everything. You know the reason they rose up is very poor. People were taking their land. You know what's it like now? I've seen things. It looks like it's doing well, but you don't know if it's propaganda or what. Like, what is the situation in Chibas now? Yeah, I mean now they've they receive a lot of their funding from or a lot of their uh, resources from um, coffee production, maize production, beans. Yeah, I've had, I've, uh, I've bought some of the EZLN coffee actually. Like, it's actually good, yeah. Good. Yeah, I recommend everybody to, <laughs> to buy a little coffee. Um, yeah, and they also receive a lot of NGO um, and international NGO support. So for the moment, they've been able to sustain themselves just because they also believe in kind of... Um, growing crops and, and, and for, for their own self-sustenance. Um, but they also do receive a lot of 
um, support from NGOs. Before we go into what's happening now, let's speak about um, the uh, their leader, you know, or, or what is kind of their, maybe not their leader, but their kind of spokesman, uh, Subcomandante Marcos. Like, he's a big, he's a big deal, right? Yeah, he is. He actually goes by Galeano now. Um, he changed... He changed his name in 2014 um, because one of their comrades um, was assassinated in an ambush. So he kind of took on his name. Um, yeah, so he has been kind of leading the charge as, as their lead spokesperson because he speaks Spanish and he was able to kind of uh, translate and and be the be the face um, for this movement. He's a mestizo. Um, when the government tried to rain on their parade and declare them as terrorist organizations, they claimed that they uh, revealed his identity. Um, to this day, no one really knows whether that's accurate or not. He wears a mask all the time, right? The, the kind of like balaclava, but it's also got a bubble on it. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's a little room for his pipe. Yeah, so, so they all cover their faces. Um, he, he's gone on, he said that they hide their faces um, not to assume kind of this individual identity, but a collective one. Um, over time, it's also been out of security and protection. And I think now it's become kind of the symbol of the Zapatistas. It, it's become very iconic iconic of the group um yeah so he he had stepped down in uh, i can't remember i believe it was 14 2014 um but he's still in the scene uh, very much so specifically and also especially because um they're kind of calling out to arms again because of the current president amlo's um kind of hopes for building new infrastructure and, and to to bring this fourth transformation of Mexico. So this they are now particularly active as of the the last couple of months in resistance to this new train. Right, and Marcos led the fighting originally, right? Yes, yes. He was kind of seen as a de facto kind of... Um, like commander or something. Yes, military chief, let's say. He he did the training and and he um he kind of coordinated. He he was the one that inspired kind of buying of the arms um because when he went to Chiapas in 83 it it had a very big kind of alcohol, alcoholism problem um and I mean, according also to 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 his interviews, never know really was um, concocted. What's bullshit and what yeah, isn't? Or, <laughs> yeah, or, you know, it's hero heroes. But um, he kind of advocated for let's stop buying so much alcohol or spending our money in so much alcohol. And let's buy arms instead. Um, so he was a kind of the leader of this um, this. Uh, Arms mobilization. And where did they buy the arms from, sorry? Oh, that's a very good question. I have no idea. I guess they're kind of not hard to get. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of them are from um, old, like, 1910 Mexican Revolution. So I'm pretty sure... Sh- uh, um, my smartest guess is that they are they were already within the campesinos. 
um, and the peasants kind of already had their own arms. Um, so maybe just buy back from the community or... Yeah, sure. So so what's happening now then? Because things have been kind of peaceful. You know, I've I've read about what's going on down there and I know people who've been and not even necessarily like political people. They've just been like, wow, they're, they're thriving down there in this little autonomous community. Um, but now they're being threatened by AMLO, right? The government and, you know, there was a declaration around New Year saying they're going to go back to arms and what have you. What's What's happening? What's going on? Yeah, so um, so a little bit of the background with AMLO and the relationship because there is a picture from 1994 with Subcomandante Marcos and AMLO and that was hugely distributed like last year as kind of, look, they're friends, they're friends. There's no beef between them. Um, and that's because AMLO had been a politician for, I mean since the 70s i think and he, he's like seen as a leftist leader right he is he is seen as a leftist leader um he had advocated for indigenous rights um previously i think he led a committee for indigenous rights within the um prd within one of the political parties um however he is seen as not left enough for the Zapatistas, he's seen as kind of more center and a replica of every other president um, that, ha- that, that we've had. Um, so, and, and to be fair, I mean, AMLO was part of the pre, the, this kind of right wing party um, from, from his, uh, his original or from the onset of his political um, career um, over time he's kind of changed sounds like a politician oh yeah uh, he's he's had three presidential runs or attempts to run for the presidency and obviously the third one was a charm but in these previous two um, he was seen as a resistance candidate and I think that's what trans that's what really transcended his image to to becoming this kind of leftist champion that he always decried political elections as fraud and he decried the corruption and we need to fix Mexico and we need to do this and we need to do that. And I think for many people, he was the answer. Unfortunately, now a year into his presidency, we've yet to see any type of progress. Um, I mean, in terms of security economy, I think it's been a very slow rise for AMLO. So for him um, to come in as also the champion of the Zapatistas was very a far-fetched goal because he's still very much operating within this already established system that the Zapatistas inherently object to. Um, They've gone into a few back and forths uh, the Zapatistas have called him crazy and manipulative. Uh, AMLO has gone back and said, you guys can't divide the country. We need to work together to move Mexico forward. So throughout this time, it's kind of been a back and forth. Unfortunately, what was the nail in the coffin um, per se for the Zapatistas was uh, AMLO's declaration or like new infrastructure proposal to make a train down in the Yucatan Peninsula 
Um, so that area is fairly relatively untouched considering um, all of other Mexico. It's an indigenous area, right? Right, right. If you've seen, I, I hate this reference and I'm kind of hate myself for making it, but if you've seen Apocalypto, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, that documentary by Mel Gibson. <laughs> but it's, it's kind of, you know, this is the territory and obviously it's changed vastly, but it's jungle, it's um, huge uh, Mayan architecture and archaeological sites around there. So the idea that there's going to be train tracks running through this um, is devastating for a lot of these communities, um, specifically who are trying to protect kind of the flora and the fauna of 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 these lands right and what was what's the reason why they why do they have to put the train tracks through there because amlo wants to dedicate or bring in more tourism to those areas <laughs> so it's it's not even like you're gonna get more people to work he just wants to be able to bring more i don't know white people basically into like into the areas yeah and that's a huge also concern for the for for these communities because i mean for a lot of these communities tourism has brought in a lot of negative consequences i mean it's very much exploited their land um a lot of the people that will come in don't particularly care about the history or its nature or what it represents to these communities. So it's it's very much seen as, you know, a, a, a deep exploitation uh, and just blatant disregard by the government to even understand why they oppose it. Um, in in uh, December, AMLO stated they had this referendum for, for the train and, and they wanted to see how much support it would garner. Um, and then they set up a referendum where only uh, 2% of eligible voters voted. And then AMLO was like, oh, it passed with overwhelming support. It's great. It's blah. Um, but the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said, that even that def- referendum doesn't comply with the international standards for human rights or with the required consultation and consent that it would require from indigenous communities. Um, and he's also been decried for not informing the citizens of the negative effects that only the positives. So from the get-go, I mean, this train um, proposal it's starting off on the wrong foot and I don't see it. I don't see the Zapatistas laying down their arms. Um, they've made uh, basically f- statements saying that they're willing to be beaten, jailed, disappeared, or even killed to oppose the Mayan train. So this is another call, basically another declaration of war for AMLO. And I've read that um, like the military are actually getting closer to the uh, Zapatista areas, that patrols are kind of in places where they weren't. I mean, do you know anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's never really stopped. They've kind of pulled out into the outskirts. But, I mean, they have a ridiculous number. I think 71 military bases all around Chiapas. So in terms of antagonizing the communities, the military is there 
for the moment that somebody in command just right. says, let's rein so they're in, surrounded. they're going to be there. So, uh, absolutely. And I mean, that, that has deeply pushed um, other communities to kind of denounce support for the Zapatistas. So, you know, in, in very much it being a very physical threat, it's also a very psychological threat to supporters of the Zapatistas and to the Zapatistas themselves. Right, and what have the, uh, specifically EZLN said about this? Because they're going to be the guys that end up fighting and dying if it has to go ahead. They're ready. Yeah, they're flat out. I mean, Comandante Marcos and another one, like um, Samuel, I believe, or I might have been just ruining his name, but uh, they've gone on record saying... We're not, we're not going to put down our arms. We're not going to stop. We're going to go to death to impede this, um, this construction. Um, right now, they're also seeking legal remedies. So several um, indigenous other communities that are supporting and also opposing, uh, supporting the Zapatistas and opposing the, the tren, the train, um, they're going kind of the legal round. So they're appealing to the government for amparos, which I think are um, kind of injunctions um, against the building until, uh, until there's kind of an independent community that's, that assesses or at least sides with them for the destruction of archaeological damage or archaeological, archaeological sites. Um, for a better understanding of the uh, ecological damage that it'll do. Um, so there's different fronts that they're attempting to appeal to. Um, so I guess we're just going to see the progression. But, I mean, the tenders for the trainer due out this month. So we're going to see a lot of private corporations and industries also tendering to see you know, what kind of role they get in the building. So there is this duality and this kind of parallel movement side by side um, with the train going on. And, and yeah, it hasn't progressed as far as it goes right now. I imagine they have a lot more weapons now as well than they did in, you know, 94. I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I read something as well about, uh, there was something like, there are areas, indigenous areas, where even cartels are kind of moving in. Have you heard anything about that? I've heard a lot of um, that the Zapatistas are working with cartels. Um, I've got no evidence for that. I mean, I've asked different people all across Mexico, even um, members of the military and police, and um, I can't get any concrete evidence on that. It's just conjecture and kind of this um, the, a big smear campaign that they are drug dealing, they're trafficking. Um, I do think that they would lose a lot of international NGO support if that were the case. Um, and you know I, 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 can't, I don't have any evidence for that. Um, another thing that I've heard is that there are big uranium plants. In, in southern Chiapas that um, that the Zapatistas are trying to exploit and they're often like cutting deals with, you know, 
other international powers to kind of have access to it. I've also not seen any evidence to that. Um, I've been trying to dig around and haven't seen anything. So you will see a lot of smearing. Um, and that's not to say that, you know, some of it may be true. Uh, but in terms of the smuggling... I was going to say, like, if, if I was in a little group that's surrounded by military and then the cartels had the guns, I mean, I, it was not a, it's not a stretch to think they went, hey, we need some, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, I mean, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised, but I, I hear what you're saying. It's certainly possible, um, but the, for the Zapatistas themselves, um, I haven't... What's the, what do people think of them? You know, like, certainly I'm obviously, like, kind of biased in a way because I, I think what they're doing there, you know... I've read quite a bit about what they're doing politically and it's kind of a, it's like a tough libertarian stance, it sounds like, rather than some kind of airy-fairy communist thing. It, to me, I thought, oh, that you know, it sounds like it works. But, like, obviously, I'm not Mexican. I don't know what people think there. What is the general kind of um, feeling towards them outside of the indigenous community? Yeah, it's very split. Um, so I've seen a lot of um, either you kind of hate them and you think that they're annoying and that they should just go away or you really sympathize with their cause. I mean, right now with the Tren Maya, the, the train, I've seen an overwhelming um, kind of denouncing of the Zapatistas specifically because this train is being seen as this um, economic, uh, developmental, big infrastructure program that's going to be benefit Mexico and that it's gonna you know bring in prosperity so there is that kind of annoyance with the group for resisting it um during the the uprising itself I mean there was a huge propaganda campaign that the Zapatistas were the ones orchestrating the the massacres um so I also saw a split. I mean, talking to my mom's family, my my family's pretty split also in this. So talking to one side is they, you know, hate them. They they want to see them gone. They they think that they're a nuisance, um, because they they do try to, um, or they have been seen as hum- humiliating the government. Um, oh well. Of opposing, <laughs> of why don't these and you know very racist comments as well as like why don't these they call them in Indios Indians like why don't these Indians want to like modernize like they need to get out of their villages they need to so you know you do see a lot of that um, which is also saying that there is a quite dynamic racist problem within Mexico for against the indigenous people. Um, so I think it just depends on kind of what area and who you're talking to that you'll see one or the other. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and there is a, whilst it's like, well, they should be able to defend their own land and their own way of life. I can kind of understand where some people are like, Hey, we're poor here. Just let this train go through. What the fuck? You know what I mean? Like if the government has built it as kind of, you know, money's going to come in. But uh, it sounds to me like history is kind of repeating itself, you know, like like in the 90s, they're fighting this kind of neoliberal government again. Um, you know, it sounds very similar. Yeah, absolutely. And it very much is. I mean, they see it as it is just a different figurehead, but it's the same 
platform. So it's, it's the same government, it's just giving us a different you know, face. And I think that there is a lot more resistance for AMLO now because he, they see him as a charade pretending to care. Whereas the other presidents, they flat out were very open and, and um, consistent with where you knew, you knew where they stood and you knew that they wanted to get rid of the Zapatistas. This kind of facade that AMLO is playing, I think, is, is really more annoying and kind of more damaging um, to them. Yeah, it's interesting, that concept, because, well, I, I don't really think it exists anymore because of this kind of post-truth world shit. But, like, I remember, you know, like, maybe 10 years ago, like, a liberal government could get away with a lot more bad things than a Republican one or, or a right-wing one almost, just because of that thing of, oh, no, we care. So then, the, you know, the, the kind of very normal stance is just to go, they're the good guys. They, they're in favour of, you know, like, Obama, he's in favour of gay rights and whatever. He's good guy. Well, also, he's in favor of, like, you know, destroying the rights of journalists and drone drone striking kids in Yemen. You know what I mean? It's like, it's that kind of concept, right? They can get away with it. Do you, do you think they will? Like, do you think that this is going to lead to a conflict or do you think it will be resolved? I don't see the, the train stopping um, and I don't see the Zapatista stopping. So, I mean, maybe there could be the opportunity for, you know, a international mediator or... I mean, I, I don't know because 90% of the investors in this train are all, are all uh, private foreign companies. Wow, we know what happens when they get involved. Right, in terms of the incentives for anybody to stop, it's, it's um, yeah, I, I, I'm kind of cringing to see because it's, I don't see it ending very well. No, me either. Do you think this year? You think like he's going to kick off this year? Um, it depends on how fast the kind of their their own building schedules are recording. Um, I think right now they're setting up the tenders and then they're going to decide how the construction goes in and, and kind of what that um, kind of the logistics. Um, but I don't. I mean, the, the disapproval for them and, and the protests, the Zapatistas have protests right now in Mexico City. So I'm actually um, going to go and observe some and, and see how, um, mm. how they are kind of coming to fruition. But yeah, the protests are there. The demonstrations are there. The call to arms are there. Um, everything right now is... is the news, I mean, every week I get reports that something is hooking up with the Zapatista, so it's getting pretty heated. Yeah, it sounds tense. Um, Janet, is there anything else you want to say before we just leave it there? Uh, no, I think that's that's about it. Mm, me too. Um, where can people get hold of you if they if they want to see you and follow your work and that? Do, uh, I guess, Twitter. Um, Janet, J-A-N-E-T underscore Basurto, B-A-S-U-R-T-O. Brilliant. Thanks, Janet. That was Janet Basurto speaking about the Isa de Len, the Zapatistas, and the fact they might have to go back to war with the Mexican government, the same one that said in the start that they respected indigenous rights, and are now like, fuck it, let's build a train. 
<laughs> but there you go. Um, definitely follow Janet. And also, I would say follow um, Demolair on Instagram. They're really useful for um, Ezerland information and anything in Mexico. It's basically like independent news source for Mexico. It's very good. It's uh, Instagram.com slash D-E-M-O-L-E-R underscore. That's, um, to be honest, that's where I first found out about the fact that the Ezerland are, you know, going back to war and that. So, yeah, check them out. If you like what we're doing, as usual, please do consider supporting us on Patreon. The more we get on Patreon, the more popular front you get. That's how it works. It all goes back in. 100% uh, independent. That's how we do it. We do not have any corporate sponsorship, nothing like that. Fuck all that. Patreon.com slash popular front. And it's not like we're like, please give us money. We've got bonus episodes, um, access to the research discord, all sorts of stuff there. Narrated articles. Yeah, there's a lot going on. You get a lot of stuff um, for very little it's us selling a subscription to more popular front content essentially i just read that the new york times have made 24 million dollars in profit with their you know to lift the paywall which fuck me mate like <laughs> how can you compete but anyway patreon.com slash popular front this episode was sponsored by the defense post Dot com defense with an s definitely check them out if you want to get informed and stay informed on what's going on in the world in regards to conflict war everything like that defense post with an s.com also this episode is sponsored by oracle coffee shop in portland in america definitely check them out they're all independent everything there is um you know ethically sourced uh you know check them out uh, tell them that um you know popular front sent you go to 3875 sw bond avenue um at portland south waterfront neighborhood definitely go and say hello to them tell us we sent you they're a good bunch of lads um again if people do want to sponsor popular front episodes get in contact with me at jake at hanrahan.tv that's H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Like I've said, I am not having the usual thing of sponsors like mattresses and the Calm app and fucking, what's that stupid mobile game that is on every fucking YouTube channel you watch now? Um, some dungeon shit. Anyway, I'm not having all that because obviously it's bollocks and it's just kind of like selling out, you know, like we do very good numbers on the podcast, but it's like, what's the point if you're just going to go against everything I've said that has built this? So what we are doing is anyone else that's independent and they have a business that's independent and, you know, we think, yeah, that's cool. That's good. Then we will, you know, we'll, we'll people can sponsor. Um, some people have come to me and it's like, nah, man, it just can't, it can't run. like It has to be. Look, independent stuff is very hard to do in the world of like corporations and, and all of that. So we like to help everybody out, help each other. So yeah, get in touch if you want. We can maybe talk, maybe not, I don't know. Please subscribe to our YouTube, youtube.com slash popular front. By the time this episode comes out, it will be the week when the third and final part of the Hong Kong documentary is out. I know it took ages, but mate, I have had buckloads to do. In future, I will definitely hire an editor. Like, I can edit, but I don't enjoy it very much, and it takes me a very long time um, whilst doing the podcast and everything else like that. 
Um, do let me know if you think there's somewhere else we should go and cover on the ground doing another dock because, you know, we are going to do more docks this year. Right now, I'm thinking maybe Chile, maybe go back to Ukraine. I don't know. Let us know what you think. Um, get in touch with us. Probably best place is... Uh, shout us on Twitter, twitter.com slash popularfrontco or Instagram, if we're not banned again by the time you hear this, instagram.com slash popular.front um, or if you want, get in touch with me on my Twitter, twitter.com slash, slash jake underscore hanrahan, h-a-n-r-a-h-a-n. Um, yeah, that's everything, I think. Thank you very much to the following Patreons. Adam Bergsnyder, Amy Rupert, Andrew Hurley, Axel Iverson, Azad, Brian McLaughlin, Callum Ross, Chad Walker, Christopher Martin, Craig Miller, Dan Dunham, Daniel Shearer, Diana Gorvenek, E. Louise Larson, Emiliano, Emily Molly, Fletcher Tate, Frank Austin, James from Discord, Janet Basoto from this episode, uh, Joanne, but by the way, that's not, you know, no one pays to get on popular front, you know, she just happened to be, um, but I've known Janet a while, known her work, she's cool. Don't worry, it's no conspiracy, no corruption. Uh, Joanne Stocker, Joel Tambusi, Josh, Jungle King Virapan, please tell me if I'm saying that wrong, mate. Kay Hardy Roberts, Lawrence Abrahams, Ari from Discord, Patrick Bronte, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Cubal, Rohan Abari, Ryan Sandercock, Scartoon Music, Sebastian from the Discord, Sentry, Sarushe Hawazi, Stephen Davila, Tom Lochrin, Tony Bin, Vida Provost, and Zachary Hinch. Thank you all very much. Without you lot, this would fall on its ass very quickly. Thank you very much. Uh, music in this episode the intro was by Home. And the outro was by Sam Black. Listen to his music at soundcloud.com slash sun-of-old. Thank you.